Hello and welcome to How Things Grow. How Things Grow is a podcast about growth and the people who drive it. Join me, your host Shamant Rao, as I speak with some of the smartest people in tech and go behind the scenes of growth trajectories of companies and technologies that power our world today. We dive into the stories of many of these growth leaders and their companies. We talk about origins, early victories, strokes of luck, troughs of failure, and much more, and deconstruct many of the things that they do to drive dramatic growth for their companies and technologies. How Things Grow is presented by me, Shamant Rao, the founder and CEO at the growth consulting firm Rocketship HQ. In the past, I've also served as the travel editor at Mint Lounge, formerly the partner newspaper of the Wall Street Journal in India. How Things Grow is supported by our audio producer, Avery Miles. My guest today is Lomit Patel. Lomit is the VP of Growth at Imvu, where he manages acquisition, retention, and monetization activities. Prior to Imvu, Lomit managed growth at many early-stage startups, including Roku, which had an IPO, Trusted ID, which was acquired by Equifax, Texture, which was acquired by Apple, and Earthlink. Lomit is a frequent speaker at different conferences and has been recognized as a mobile hero by Liftoff. In today's episode, we talk about one of the pivotal moments in Lomit's career when he presented a one-word strategic plan to kick off a massive transition within his company, Imvu. We go into the circumstances that preceded his one-word plan. We talk about his thinking behind it and how he not only rallied his team to execute upon his one-word plan, but also drove some massive impact as a result of executing this plan. As a consequence of which, Imvu had 50% year-on-year growth after years of flatlined growth numbers. In this episode, we go very deep in exploring the anatomy of a huge transition that originated in a one-word strategic plan. And I find some of the details here incredibly fascinating. I'm very excited to have Lomit Patel on How Things Grow. Lomit, welcome to the show. Thanks, Shamaf. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Thrilled to have you, Lomit. I would like to start somewhere in the middle of our story. I would like to start with your one-word strategic plan for your company. Before we jump in and tell our listeners what your one-word strategic plan was, I would love for you to set some context and tell us what was going on at the time. Tell us a bit about your company. Tell us a bit about how long you had been there at the point of time when you presented your one-word plan. Yes, so I joined MVU in December 2016 as the head of growth. And just to sort of set the context, when I joined MVU, primarily the company's focus was all around user acquisition on desktop because we had a really popular desktop app that that has been around since 2004. And so at the time when I was joining, we were kind of in the stages of just having launched a iOS and an Android app, but it wasn't really the big focus on the company as far as user acquisition and growth went. And so one of the things I noticed coming in was part of my sort of 30, 60, 90 day evaluation was really to sort of look at, you know, what have we been doing up to this point? What has really been working and what hasn't been working? Because primarily my role coming in 
was to really help the company to figure out what's going to be kind of the next area of us driving hockey stick growth. And so up to that point, the growth was pretty much flat year over year for, for a while. So that was kind of my challenge coming in. Got it. Yeah. And it was a desktop app. And this was 2016. So completely understandable that desktop isn't a growing market. So that was completely understandable. Can you also tell us a bit more about Imvu, what exactly Imvu is? Absolutely. Imvu is the leading avatar-based social networking app. So what that pretty much entails is that people come into our app and they create an avatar, which is usually an aspirational version of how they like to be perceived. And once they create the avatar, it opens them up to connect with millions of users around the world who have created avatars. So we have like virtual worlds where people can connect with other users in chat rooms or uh, in different virtual worlds. So even though it's like a social network, it's also like a role-playing game, but a lot of the things happen organically. So it's not like typical games where you sort of come in and you have a linear path on what you need to do in terms of next steps. But it's been very popular primarily with females and millennials. So main ages is between 13 and 24. But the 18 to 24-year-olds, females gravitate very well to our game. Got it. So it is an alternate reality, so to speak. right? And when you came in, it had been a desktop app for 12 years. You came in with a 30-day plan to figure out what's working, what's not. You saw growth was flat. And tell us more about what was the lead up to your presenting your one word plan. Was there a specific meeting where you presented this? Had you been asked to come up with ideas? Tell us a bit more about the specific context where you did present your plan. Yes. So the context was that every year in January, all the different executives have to present kind of strategic plans for the area and how it's going to sort of focus to help the company kind of hit its objectives for that specific year. And so, as I'd mentioned, my timing was you know, I joined right in December, so it wasn't like I had a lot of time, but it was enough time to really sort of get into kind of looking at the data and get a good feel. So with those first 30 days, it really became clear to me, at least when I was kind of looking at things and through the team that I had, that we were really spending a lot of our money. But when we were kind of looking at kind of the key objectives, at least for us, in terms of measuring success was how much does it cost us to acquire users? What is our return on investment on all of those paid channels? And specifically, how much is it really contributing to the year-over-year growth, which is pretty much the bottom line? So in 2017, the big goal that the CEO, at the time, who was the interim CEO, who was my manager, had asked everyone, this year we want to grow a certain percentage. And everybody come back with specific plans from your teams on how we can kind of get that goal. So, so that was kind of the context leading in. And that was the meeting that you're referencing that was going to happen in January. Got it. So flat growth for multiple years and your CEO is like, okay, come back with ideas for growing, no pressure. And you look at your data, you look at your research and you come back with one word. And now to put our listeners out of their suspense, tell us what was that one word 
in your strategic plan? So for me and my team, it was very clear that one word was mobile because primarily all of our focus up to that point was all around desktop. And as I'd mentioned, MVU had just gone into launching these mobile apps. The big hesitation, I would say, was at least before I got there, they were very conservative about trying to really figure out, is mobile really going to be a growth channel or not? Is it going to even be able to drive profitable user growth? Primarily, there were a lot of fashion marks and obviously needing to sort of pay 30% to Apple and Google with in-app purchases. All of those things were sort of feeding into kind of a negative perception around mobile really sort of being kind of a growth channel. For me, coming in, I really saw ultimately the way I looked at it as at least the little bit of money that was being spent. So if you kind of take a look at the breakout of the budget, 95, 96% was all going into desktop, but there was 4% going into mobile. But when I started looking at the cohort of users of mobile versus desktop, it, it was pretty clear that there was definitely opportunity to, to acquire them cost effectively if you got the targeting right, if you got the creative right, if you got the user experience right. And considering there was no emphasis that was really put into kind of looking at the user journey, but it was just a little bit of money being spent here and there. That wasn't really the right way to really evaluate something, at least in my opinion, coming in. Yeah. So there were a lot of question marks internally. And I imagine there was a lot of pressure because the company had been flat for a couple of years. And yet you had the confidence because you saw the numbers, you saw the metrics, and you basically said, all right, I'm just going to bring one word. And out of curiosity, did you take this one word on a slip of paper? Did you just not take any notes to that meeting? Tell me more about how you exactly presented that word. I actually just presented it on my notepad. I had, had a little notepad. <laughs> I wrote it in that. The reality is, I mean, I went in there, obviously, with the one word being mobile. But in the background, I did have my research done as far as why we wanted going mobile, what would be the Pacific plan. But I knew if I went into that meeting, I was obviously going to a meeting where for the most part, and I'm just trying to use this in, in a respectful way, is that when you work with companies that have executive teams that have been around a long time, after a while, you, you run into this thing called echo chambers, where everybody's just pretty much trying to go along party lines, if that makes sense. Everybody just wants to say the thing to please whatever the CEO or other people want to hear. And nobody wants to sort of put them out. For me, I pretty much was the new person. And on top of that, I knew if I was going to go along with that party line, then I wasn't going to be successful based on what I was really being brought in to do. And by trying to sort of convince people with a series of PowerPoints at that stage, wasn't going to get the message across as much as just doing something that was really counter to what everybody else was doing, which was trying to just present with PowerPoints, just to re-emphasize doing the same thing that was pretty much being done the previous year and expecting a different result, which all of us know, if you keep doing the same thing again and again, you're not going to get a different result. <laughs> and so that was kind of my reason around not really even going down the convention way of trying to convince them with stats or, or, or even on data at that point. It was to do something that would leave an impression. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was a brave move, especially given you were relatively new to the team. So 
you write this word on your notepad, you slide it across to your team. What's the immediate reaction? The immediate reaction was, I would say a little bit of shock because yeah. <laughs> everyone is used to a certain protocol, right? Every company has a culture and those cultures around, you know, PowerPoints and, and certain formalities or whatever. But, but the reality is it achieved what I wanted to achieve at the end because ultimately it, it opened up a discussion and I was able to have a frank discussion because for me, and, and I think we'll probably cover this um, you know, later on in the podcast. But what helps is the fact that MV wasn't the first startup that I've worked at. And I've had a lot of experience driving growth and having that track record, as well as working with other executive teams. And generally, what I've found over the years is that the more I've tried to hold back on really speaking from my heart in terms of how I feel about things, it generally backfires. Because ultimately, in growth, you have to be the person that's really has the vision to really figure out not only how you're going to be successful for this year, but how are you going to be successful for the next three to five years down the road? You've got to keep forward thinking. Yeah. So you had the conviction to lead the way to say what not a lot of others were willing to say, even though they probably thought about mobile, but it sounded like there'd been this culture of just staying flat year over year. But you voiced your idea and made things happen. Amazing stuff. Just to also dive into that episode. Imvus had been around in 2004 and it was very established on desktop. Now, as an analogy to this, console games are still a very substantial market. Therefore, was there some sort of thinking in the team that, look, maybe we need to just build a better desktop product and we will grow. Maybe mobile... It's just a completely different screen. It's a completely different user experience. Our users might actually hate it. Were there reservations that mobile wouldn't work or mobile wasn't even right for the product? Yes, um, absolutely. You know, there was definitely a lot of, I'm trying to find the, the right word, but I would say that skepticism. There was definitely skepticism. And part of it is because when you do look at our desktop product, obviously there's a lot of hard work that really goes into creating that whole experience, especially being in 3D and that was immersive virtual worlds and trying to replicate that into mobile, which is a much smaller screen and obviously trying to keep the performance. There's a lot of challenges to do that. And what it comes down to, there has to be trade-offs. Like you have a box of, hey, these are the 12 things that we can do on desktop, but we're not going to be able to do those 12 things perfectly on mobile. So we have to strip down and do the trade-offs in terms of what are the things that we will try to include into the mobile product and what are some of the things that we won't. And I think that's where a lot of the where a lot of the things were kind of getting hung up because there was obviously really strong points of views on what it needs to have versus what it can do without, right? Because mm-hmm. the great thing about MVU, just the level set, is that generally people that work at MVU have worked there for a long time. So it's it's a really great place to work. But the flip side of that is that, again, it's like you're kind of used to doing things a certain way. You kind of have echo chamber of people reinforcing, hey, this is the way things are done. This is the way we want to continue to do it. And then you get sort of people coming in from the outside. But at the time, the majority of the resources were all around desktop. So the mobile didn't really, I mean, our mobile team was very 
very small at the time because, again, it wasn't really proven if this thing was even going to work. But ultimately, getting people comfortable, and, and, and that was part of my role, but obviously there were other people that were involved, just getting people comfortable that mobile doesn't need to be 100% of what desktop's about. It just has to take the best of what we can do on desktop and try to put it into a mobile environment. And so that's what we ended up doing. But again, there's a lot of skepticism that our current users aren't going to like it. But the reality is, and and this was a key point that I try to make, is that the users that we're ultimately going to get on mobile, we would never, ever get on desktop anyway. Why are we trying to worry about, I mean, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, sort of discount, but sometimes companies have this way of really focusing on 10% and giving that 90% of your attention versus focusing on on the 90%, that's going to get you to where you want to go instead of getting hung up on that 10%. That's not going to be perfect for that 90%. And the reality is when we did get the apps out, sure, it wasn't perfect. But the reality is nothing ever is perfect. And you have to continue to test, learn, and iterate with different variations. But the main couple of the key things I wanted to make sure that the mobile product had was some of the popular functionalities around creating the avatar and being able to chat, you know, because chat was very popular. And we don't need to put in all of the potential chat rooms, but let's put in enough where people can have a potential MVU experience. And we also have the largest virtual store of items that people use to customize their avatar. So it's like 40 million items. Even if we couldn't have gotten all of those, let's get the most popular ones in there, right? Sure. And then the other part of MVU is that we have a huge creator community, people that actually go and create a lot of this content. Yes, they're not going to be able to do that on mobile. And we shouldn't even be forcing people to create content on mobile anyway, because that's not the right place to create it. So it's like, you know, you don't have to move everything over. Let's just cherry pick the things based on user research that we know are popular, let's get out there. And so, and once we started doing that, and like I said, you know, before I came, they had the mobile, but they never really focused on really putting any traction on it. So it kind of just reinforced, this thing isn't really going to do that well. We're not getting any users. But then obviously, if if you're not going to go all in and really figure it out, yeah, it's not going to do that well. That goes with anything in life. Yeah, yeah. If you do something, like heartedly, you can either talk yourself into doing something well or you can talk yourself out of it. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense, which is not to say it was easy. You fought the good fight. You made those hard product trade-offs. You pushed for those changes. So as you pointed out, your team had worked on desktop for a long time, over a decade. And when you had to transition to mobile, not only do you have to transition the product, but you also have to transition the team and the way the team thinks, the the way the team approaches work just at a very, very basic level. So I would imagine there was a time when, at least briefly, when when you had a plan, when you had a direction, but may not have had a lot of expertise around mobile. And I understand you guys had layoffs around the time as well. So what had to change in the team? What had to change organizationally to transition from desktop to mobile? So that's a really good question. I would say one of the key things that you need to change in a company when you're looking to go in strategically into a different direction is just ensuring that everybody kind of knows the direction that you're going in. And that needs to come from the top. Top being like, you know, the CEO has to sort of be aligned with kind of the vision 
at is MVU going to become, is MVU's focus going to be a mobile first business or not? And once we had that in, in alignment, was what happened too was obviously when I joined my manager was the interim CEO. We ended up hiring a new full-time CEO in the summer of that year that you're referencing prior to the layoffs. And he came from a mobile background. And that really helped because by that time, we were able to demonstrate the success in terms of acquiring users successfully from through mobile. Even though we weren't spending a vast majority of our budget, it was still, it was close to around 40, 45%, and 50, 55% was kind of going into desktop at the time. And with the new CEO coming in and kind of getting him aligned, there is a lot more room that we have to really grow in mobile. What, what was kind of holding us back was the fact that we need to invest more into the mobile teams to try and improve the user experience. Because again, the great thing is with any app in the app store, you just have to go read the reviews and you get pretty great feedback right, in terms of what people like about you and what they don't. You don't have to be running blind on this stuff. And so part of what my team was do, used to do was aggregate a lot of this feedback and funnel it back. And it wasn't like we weren't aware of certain performance issues. It's that we didn't really have the team in place and we needed to hire more people in that to really sort of get a lot of these improvements in place. And so, so going back to what you said, yes, so once we had a new CEO and we kind of made the decision about really focusing on mobile, that required sort of bringing in people of certain different skill sets. Unfortunately, you know, some of these skill sets that we had weren't as relevant based on where we were looking to go as a business. Yeah. And those sorts of transitions are never easy. Something I also find astonishing about what you did to drive all of this transition is that you yourself did not have a lot of mobile experience until you joined Invo. And correct me if I'm wrong there. What gave you the confidence that you could go in, figure out this completely new direction? And also, what did you do to educate yourself? What resources did you find useful and helpful as you not only proposed whole new direction for the company, but also sort of realized you didn't have a lot of experience in that regard. Yeah, that's that's a good question. In terms of experience, and I would say you're right as far as I didn't have pure mobile gaming experience. Prior to joining MU, you know, I worked at a couple of companies that were still kind of cross-platforms. So one was called Next Issue, which got rebranded into Texture, which was a subscription-based mobile app, but it was on desktop and, and mobile that gave users um, unlimited access to all the premium magazines. So it was a joint venture between Meredith, Hearst, Time, News Corp. And there I did the similar thing because when I joined them, they were just coming out with this mobile app. And so I got to learn a lot there. And I was there for over three years. But the big learning that I got there was an example of a company that didn't want to pay the 30% in purchase for, for iOS and Google. And so we kept doing a lot of friction of pushing people into our website to sign up before downloading the app. And, you know, eventually we obviously pivoted away from that and ended up going direct. But I was able to learn a lot about kind of mobile there, but also learn on how not to do it either, right? Because you always learn whether you learn the good lessons or you learn the bad lessons. But I would say that even though I didn't have pure hardcore experience in mobile coming in, into MVU, what I did have, though, is... I've had over 20 years of digital marketing experience. So, so I've worked at companies 
all around growth. So I had a really good broad experience into all the different channels on really understanding SEM, SEO, app store optimization works, how CPA affiliate, how to do a lot of pretty much have been doing A-B testing and experiments, onboarding, user flows, CRM, lifecycle marketing, all of that for a long time. And so that, what really gave me the confidence is really because even though mobile are like different channels in terms of how you can go and acquire user, but in terms of the way you kind of go around evaluating and optimizing and scaling those channels, all of those steps and processes are, are still very similar to what I used to do when it was acquiring users on the web and top. So I didn't find a lot of difference. But the other thing that I did find though is, because I've been in the industry for a while, a lot of the people that I used to work with that used to be working with companies like Google and Facebook back in when we were on like, you spend a lot of money on web and desktop. All of those same people have moved over into mobile. I've always had this pretty good network that I've been able to reach out to and be able to like, talk about, hey, I'm trying to approach this. How would you and try to get insights from, from other people? And on top of that, I'm a very strong, avid reader. <laughs> I, I love reading. I, I spent at least an hour or two just reading around different subjects and getting deeply immersed into, you know, reading about how other companies that were going through similar challenges really figured out back in the nut when it came to mobile. And the reality is, at the end of the day, there is no secret formula, right? It's all about relentless yeah. stint, but it's also about just really being able to leverage data, right? And trusting the data to really give you the direction in terms of if you go left or right, and then using qualitative research to really, you know, look at user reviews, ask users through surveys in terms of why something is going a certain way on. Got it. So even though you didn't have direct experience, you had comparable experience and you were willing to learn, you were willing to ask questions and pick up things about this whole new domain called mobile and figure this out as you went along, even while the entire company was transitioning. And like you said, you've worked in digital marketing for close to 20 years now. The other fun fact about you is that you're the first Malawi-born person to be a guest on this podcast. So tell us a bit briefly about your journey from Malawi to your early work to where you are today. Sure. Uh, first of all, it's an honor to be the first Malawian-born person on your show. <laughs> I would say it's, it's an honor to first of all be on your show, but, but to be the first Malawian yeah. to be on your yeah. show, it's it's really funny, but, but let me kind of give you the context on terms of how I ended up being born in Malawi. Long story short, and you might be able to relate to this, being from an Indian family. So I have three older sisters, and obviously with most Indian families always want to try and have a boy, right? And so my mom's family had left India and my grandparents were in Malawi and, and my dad's family had left India and he was actually born in Nairobi, Kenya, and that's where his family was. And so obviously they got married and then they moved to England. But by the time they were having this fourth, people were kind of getting a little impatient. They said, listen, why don't you just come out here? Maybe the change of water or 
more luck. Maybe you will get a boy because this is four and done. This is it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, my mom obviously went to Malawi and lucky I was born there. But having said that, I will sort of pivot back. So obviously, when I was a couple of months old, whatever, I, I actually went back to England. But when I was around six for elementary school, I actually went back and I went to elementary school in Malawi. The great thing about growing up there, it's different from the way sort of growing up where now when I look at my kids, everything has to be scheduled. You know, everything's formalized. Try and like, your kids, they call it play date. Like, can we have a play date? In Malawi, maybe it's similar in India. It's, the whole community is so, everybody knows each other. You, your kids are out playing. I would say that it's more of a freeing experience to really enjoy being a kid that, that you don't really get now. And so I really enjoyed that. And then obviously I came back went to middle school in England. Then after that, I actually ended up going to boarding school too. And then after boarding school, went to college. But then after that, worked a couple of years in England. But one thing that I was always fascinated by when I graduated from college in London was this whole thing around companies like Yahoo and AOL coming up. Nobody had any of those companies in England at the time, obviously, because everything was really happening in the US. But I was just really fascinated with the whole area of internet marketing and online. And the thing I liked about it is because, you know, my favorite subject, obviously, I graduated with, with a marketing major, was I love the idea of being able to use data and being creative. And the fact with online, you get that instant gratification versus I mean, I worked previously in doing a lot of like direct mail and print magazines and all that stuff. And so I decided that I really wanted to come to America to do my grad master's in marketing because it would give me an opportunity to sort of be in a place where something that I was really passionate about, I was able to get more knowledge on. And so that was a big move for me because I obviously had no family out here. I came out for grad school and of all the places I ended up going to the to a city called St. Louis, which was completely different from what I had grown up seeing on the TV. Most of the TV shows that you see of America or movies, you see it's all based on New York or LA, right? And then you sort of have yeah. this perception that all every city is like New York and LA, and it really is. But it really opened the door for me because it enabled me to obviously, you know, once I graduated, you know, I would say my first true e-commerce experience was when I moved to Chicago. And then I started my career at a company called Morningstar, which, again, was really interesting now that I look back because they were a big print business of doing publications around ratings and reviews on how to invest your money in stocks and mutual funds. When I first joined there, that's when they were pivoting from being a traditional uh, print business to the web. So I was able to see a little bit of that. And then from there, I joined another company that kind of went through a similar transition, which was a traditional business that wanted to transition to the web. After that, ultimately, the question for me was, if you really want to be in digital and, and startups, you have to go to where all that action is happening. And that's San Francisco, right? So that's why I ended up leaving Chicago, moved to San Francisco. And, and then first company that I got to work for which really, really made a huge difference to me was People PC, but it was acquired by Earthlink. So it was a competitor to AOL, and it was all about dial-up internet service. So it was the company that was providing people access to the internet. And there, I was fortunate to have a really great manager who, again, to, to your point, I mean, I had broad experience, but, but he trusted me 
with budgets that I didn't spend before, millions and millions. So it wasn't like going from A to Z, but going from A, B, C, but doing it at a higher velocity by increasing the number of experiments and, and how we were able to, to scale at that time channels like email marketing, affiliate marketing, Google, and, and social media wasn't even around then, and SEO. So that was a motivation for me. How can I help the company to be successful? So what I've really enjoyed over the course of my career is that you have to interact with so many different groups internally and externally, but you also have to ultimately be the biggest optimist in the company too. You have to be able to see the glass being half full and not as half empty and figure out how to get it completely full. And, and you're never gonna get it completely full, but you have to strive to do that. Tell us about some of the results of that transition at Imvu. Tell us about some of the metrics that it resulted because you guys transitioned to mobile. Yeah, so ultimately for us, Imvu, the way we define success on growth, it's never about driving installs or driving registered users because we get millions of those. It always comes back down to how many new pain users are we getting and how cost-effectively are we acquiring those users? How long does it take us to recoup the money we're spending on acquiring these users? And so what I'm proud to say that not only my team, but us at MV as a business, what we've been able to do is that we've been able to grow over 50% year over year consistently since I've been here. Even though we've kind of cut back significantly on our, on our desktop, we've still been able to maintain that business. Instead of spending about 50, 60% of our budget, we spend about 15% and we still get the same results and driving growth on desktop for a lot less money now. So those were incredible results, Lovett. And I know it has been described as the coolest social network you've never heard of. What were some of the things that surprised you when you looked at these virtual worlds, when you studied their metrics, when you studied the mechanics by which all of these people interacted with their avatars? That's a really good question. And I'll start by saying this, too, that... Before I joined MVU, I wasn't really a user or anything of MVU myself. So I really had no real context on what to really expect until I really got into the company and I started looking at the numbers. But, but a couple of things that really stood out for me really early in, in the data, one was just the amount of time people were spending in the product. People were able to figure out the aha moments in MVU pretty early those users were sticking around for a long time. The other thing that stood out for me in terms of numbers was the fact that even though this was kind of a virtual environment and people were creating avatars, the feelings that, or at least from the feedback that we got and, and the way we see people interacting, even though it's virtual, the emotional connections that people make, just like they do in real life social networks, whether it's like Facebook or Snapchat, it's the same kind of connection. The thing that, that I was going to come back to sort of answer your question is it's all about friendships. Just like, and I, I can't remember the exact number, but now on Facebook, was it when they kind of looked at the growth metric or something like 15 friends, seven days or whatever. For us, it, for us, it was like 10 friends in seven days. But ultimately, we knew if we can get friends. And the other thing was getting them to spend a nominal amount. So for us, if we could get somebody to spend something, even a $1, but in order to buy stuff, you have to buy MVU credits, which is our MVU currency, which you use to pay for this different stuff. 
so what we did was to really figure out what's enough free MBU credits to get users started to start getting them to dress up their avatar, but not enough to really get it to look perfect. And so there was, that was a lot of testing that went into what was the optimal number to really give out, right? And so what we found once we got to that number, which for us was around 4,000 MBU credits, we started getting more people purchasing that a lowest initial MBU credit pack, which was 99 cents for a thousand credits. And so once we started getting, even though we got just people spending 99 cents, the majority within the first seven days, that led up to close to over a hundred over the lifetime. Right. So you start by enabling them to take a small step and have them progress gradually, gradually become acclimatized with Imvu itself. And I know that was just one sentence and that sounds very simple but as you briefly pointed out that involves a lot of testing a lot of iteration and i know that's the discipline and that's the sort of iterative testing that brought you guys to 50 percent year-on-year growth from a point where you guys had basically flatlined for a long time and that's such an incredible feat and as you described earlier in this interview not just shifting a product, but also shifting a team, but also shifting yourself to make all of this transition happen. So Lomit, I know we are coming up against the end of our time together. I think this would be a good time to start to wrap up. Could you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you? Yes, the best way to stay in contact with me, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm always posting interesting things, either about what we're doing here at Enview and or other interesting tidbits of information or articles that I'm reading in the industry that could be useful for other people. Definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. If you send me an invite, I will definitely accept it. So look out for me on LinkedIn. Another thing that I started doing too is, you know, I obviously write a lot of articles that I post on different blogs. One of those is the the Mobile Hero blog with Liftoff. But I've also been, I've also created my own blog domain now too. So it's lomitpatel.com. So if you go there, you'll be able to find a lot of the content that I've written in the past. And then on another place you could kind of find me, which is on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is at patellom, P-A-T-E-L-L-O-M. Excellent. Yep. Lots of places to find you, follow you. And as you mentioned, you are a prolific writer. And I've always enjoyed reading the stuff you've written and posted. And I'm sure our listeners will check those out as well. So, Lomit, this has been an incredible, incredible conversation. Very, very excited to be sharing this with the world very soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shamaf. It was a pleasure being on the podcast and really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Hey, everyone. This is Shamant again. Before you go... I have a very small but important request for you. If you get any pleasure or inspiration from this episode or from How Things Grow, could you please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform, be it iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasting fix. This podcast takes many, many hours of my time and is very much a labor of love. When you write a review, it will not only be a great deal of encouragement to me, but will also support getting the word out about how things grow. Thank you so much for listening along 
and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of How Things Grow in two weeks' time. Thank you.